Hey, welcome. This is Jeff Hagee of Jeff Hagee Coaching. I am so excited today to have my friend Ari Schonbrunn with me. Now, Ari and I have just known each other for a short while, but uh, we've just hit it off. It's been a lot of fun talking and getting to know each other better. And I'm really grateful for him to be here today to share his story. It's quite an incredible story. And you know, it's, I'm, I know it's going to have a lot of impact on those that are listening to it, but just to give you a brief introduction, um, Ari began his career on wall street in 1981 and he is now an author, a speaker and so much more. But what I want to do is I want to turn it over to Ari and let him give more of an introduction. And then we're going to get into having him share his story with us today. Welcome, Ari. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. I'm so excited to be on your show. Um, you know, it's I, I'm I'm just all goosebumps. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you know, I want to get into everything about whispers and bricks and everything, so everyone can find you and follow you. But to begin with, let's let's go back. I mean, let's just get right into it. Let's go back to. September 11th and start with us there. Tell us first of all um, about what you were doing, your career and how you ended up where you were. Okay. So why, why don't we start, as, as you said, I started my career in 1981, uh, went to work for a, uh, a bank. It was a subsidiary of an Israeli bank. Um, you know, started my career there and after 10 years, worked my way up to uh, running a trading room, um, went through five presidents uh, of the bank. And by the time the fifth one showed up, I went like, you know, didn't feel very, very stable. So I up and left, uh, went to work for a short period of time for a commodities trading firm uh, where I was trading currencies. Um, and in the early nineties, the bottom fell out of that market, a bunch of places closed down. Um, I wound up on the street, um, bumped into a, um, bumped into a guy that was covering me at, at the bank from, uh, from Cantor Fitzgerald. Um, and we got to schmoozing and he asked me if I would come on board, um, not in the role of trading, but more in the role of um, management. Uh, there was there, the, the the firm was going through all kinds of issues and whatnot, and he, you know, asked me if I would just you know help him, you know, set it right. Um, I agreed, and I started there in 1993. I missed the first bombing. The first bombing was in February of '93. In the, tra- in the towers, um, I started there in October of 1993. Uh, again, you know, working my way up around the firm, and I was working. Um, I was working for. I was reporting into the CFO of the company at the time uh, when 9/11 came about. Um, I had a team that was, uh, I was managing all of the, um, our, uh, our, our payables and receivables, more the receivables than the payables. Um, and I was managing that group and, um, nine 11 came around and 
well, let's let's get down to the to that story. Um, it was about twenty to seven in the morning. I had my briefcase over my shoulder. I had my cup of coffee in my hands. I yelled up to my wife, "Bye, hon. Love you. See ya." And I yelled up to my kids, "Bye, kids. Have a great day in school." And I started to walk out the door. And all of a sudden, my wife from the second floor yells down to me. She says to me, "Did you do Baruch's book order?" Now, Baruch is my third child. He was eight years old at the time, and I learned something very important. I learned that teachers have a wonderful way of torturing parents. It's called the scholastic book order. Now, if you have a kid in school, all right, you, you're, you're doing exactly what everybody, every audience that I tell this story does. You started to laugh. Sure, because we've all been there. Well, my wife was a school principal and she had just opened school. It was exactly one week before Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And she worked in, a, in an all-girls uh, Jewish school. And so she was busy getting school up and running. And she was also busy, you know, doing the cooking and the baking and getting ready for the holidays. So she was very short on time. Not that I had any more time, but she just didn't want to deal with him. So I said, fine. She says, it's your job. You do it. And I said, okay, fine. I'll do it. Um, What happened was the problem was that my days and nights were pretty full because of because because the way the Jewish holidays fell out, they fell out on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So basically for the next four weeks, I was going to be working about two days a week. So I was getting into the office at eight o'clock in the morning, 7.30 sometimes. And I wasn't leaving the office until, you know, seven, eight, nine o'clock at night, getting home very late. So I was supposed to do the, the book order with him on Monday night, but I got home late and I just, he was, by the time I got home, he was sleeping. So I didn't do it. So she says, did you do the book order? I said, no. She goes, you're not leaving this house until you do that book order with him. So I went into my kitchen, proceeded to negotiate with my eight-year-old for the next 20 minutes. I whittled him down to two books and I felt pretty good about it. But interestingly enough, the two books that he picked were from a series called Survivor. Now, when those books came, I went like, man, God, you've got a great sense of humor. You know, it's just like, (laughs) it was just, it was amazing. By the way, you're going to hear in my story, there are a lot of coincidences that happened throughout the course of my story. Um, But at the end of the day, when I got home and I, you know, looked through the entire day of what had happened, I realized that, you know, God was on my side. You know, it was, it was just no two ways about it. Without him, I never would have, I never, I would have been killed a dozen times over but he was watching out for me. So, oh, and, and you're going to see a lot of irony. And here's irony number one. That book order was due on Monday. But my son left his pamphlet in school on Friday. Now, had he brought that pamphlet home on Friday, I would have done it with him on Sunday. And on Tuesday morning, I would have been sitting at my desk at 8 o'clock in the morning and you'd be st- sitting here speaking to somebody else about their story because I'd be dead. But because he left his pamphlet in school on Friday, I am around today to tell my story. Wow. Amazing, wow. isn't it? It absolutely is. Right. So after I finished, I, you know, I filled out the tear sheet, wrote the check, put it into his knapsack. And, um, oh, by the way, you know, my wife wrote a note to the teacher on Monday asking, asking if he can have an extra day, you know, and she sent a note back saying, of course. And, um, which is why we, 
you know, why that whole thing happened. My wife actually wrote a note to the teacher on Wednesday thanking her for giving the extra day because that saved my life. Wow. Yeah. So, wow. okay, so now I pick up my co- my briefcase, I pick up my cold cup of coffee, and out the door I go. I am so upset with my wife because that 20 minutes that I spent cost me 40. And I didn't get to the trade center until 20 to 9. I was like, really, I was so upset. Of course, I was thanking her by the time I got home that night, thanking her for uh, making me run late. Um, so... I got to the World Trade Center at 20 minutes to nine. I worked in Tower One at the World Trade Center. And uh, my office was on the 101st floor. You couldn't, you couldn't get an elevator all the way up to 101 from the lobby. You had to take an express to 78. And then on 78, you got out. It was a sky lobby. And when you get out in the sky lobby, there are other elevators to take you up to the higher floors. So... The first elevator that came down was all the way on the right side of the lobby. I went running down to that elevator, um, went in, got up to the 78th floor, got out, and realized that the elevator that I needed to get to my office on 101 was all the way on the left side of the sky lobby. So I got out of the elevator, hung a left, and started to walk towards that bank of elevators. I was about eight feet from those elevators when, as best as I can describe, there was an explosion. The entire building shook. The lights went out, the place filled with smoke, and I was literally thrown off my feet. And there was screaming. There was somebody yelling fire in the elevator. I literally thought a bomb had gone off in the elevator. That's what I thought. That's how violently the building shook. Um, I'm on the floor. Um don't know what to do. I look around and I see there's a light in between two banks of elevators, of the big elevators that I had just come up in. So I figured it's probably an emergency light and it's probably a good place to go. So I literally crawled from where I was because there was so much smoke. Where I was, I literally cr- crawled to that light, got up, went behind the bank of elevators, found an office there. I'd been working in that building for eight years. I never knew there was an office on that floor. It was a security office. And I walked in there and there was a guy who was the quote unquote fire warden for the floor. Like every, every floor in, in those buildings had an individual who was responsible for disseminating information. If something happens, cases of emergency and building management would be able to get hold of him and he would be able to get hold of them. There was a special phone that they had that went down to the lobby, et cetera. So I knew he was the fire warden because he wore this silly red hat and it said fire warden on it. Now, I knew that because I had the same silly hat because I was also the fire warden for my floor. So I looked at the guy and I said, what do we do? Where do we go? The guy looked at me and goes, I don't know. Of course he didn't know. We had no idea what had happened. All we knew was, all I knew was a bomb went off in the elevator. That's all I knew. I went back out in the hall and to try and find a way to get out. And I bumped into a coworker of mine. Her name was Virginia DiChiara. Virginia was on the elevator that I was about to get on when that plane hit. And she described the situation to me. She said the the doors of the elevator started to close. And when the plane hit, they jammed and they were open about a foot. The walls of the elevator collapsed. The ceiling collapsed. The cable snapped and was sparking in the elevator. The jet fuel came down the sides of the elevator and it was ignited by the sparks and there was a wall of fire. 
There were three people in that elevator. There was Roy Bell, Virginia, and Renee. Roy Bell was the first one to jump through the fire. He suffered second-degree burns. Virginia jumped out right after him. She suffered third-degree burns. And Renee, who was the last one out, she died from her burns. That was the difference between life and death that day, like that six, eight, ten seconds. That was it, at least for these three people. What floor did the impact happen? The impact was on 92 or 93, but the plane went in on an angle, so it went like from 93 to 101. And um, so I, she, Virginia looks at me, she says to me, Ari, thank God, please help me. And please, whatever you do, don't leave me. I said to Virginia, I promise I will not leave you and we will get out of here. And here's irony number two. Virginia and I were not good friends. Uh-uh-uh. She was an internal auditor and she had been hired the year before by Canner. And the first department she audited was mine. And needless to say, she didn't give me very good marks. As a matter of fact, she almost got me fired. And there we were, she and I. I had a decision to make. You know, what do I do? Do I save my butt or do I help her and risk getting killed? And I knew what I needed to do. Our past didn't matter. She was another human being who was in trouble. And I was the guy that God put there. And I was going to do exactly what I was supposed to do. And that's what I said to her, Virginia, we will get out of here. I will not leave you. I brought her into that office, gave her something to drink. Finally, the, uh, the fire warden says, okay, we can get out sterile on the left. Went out to the hall. We found the stairwell. Um, and there were lights on in the stairwell. So I figured there were emergency lights. Now, there was Roy Bell, Virginia, myself, and the fire warden. And there were about six or eight other people with us. Um, and I remember looking inside the stairwell, I saw the lights, but I figured, you know, how long are they going to last? I don't know. And if those lights go out, it'll be pitch black. So I turned to the people behind me. I said, does anybody have a flashlight? And two people come back and like, yeah, we got flashlights. And I remember thinking to myself, where did you get a flashlight from? And why are you <laughs> carrying it? What do you, I mean, it wasn't like today where we have the flashlights on our phones. Or no, you had to, it was a physical. I said, listen, folks, if the lights go out, nobody panic. We will have light. And the next thing I did was I looked down at Virginia's feet and I said, thank God she's wearing flats. Because I'll tell you, there were high heeled shoes in that stairwell all the way down. Women had just kicked them off to get out as fast as they could because you can't really run in high heels. Right. It was unbelievable. So we got into the stairwell and we started to go down. There was, uh, and it was the fire warden, Roy Bell, myself, and Virginia. We walked in a line. I remember that because I told Virginia, if you feel faint, if you feel like you're going to fall, fall forward, fall on me, and I'll carry you. Uh, Roy Bell wasn't too happy with that because he figured I was going to fall on top of him and he, we would all die. <laughs> I said, don't worry, Roy. We've got it handled. It's okay. And we started to head down. Here is coincidence number three. We got down to the 75th floor, three flights. And all of a sudden, my cell phone rang. Now, you got to remember something. In the World Trade Center, you could never get signal. I remember standing up by my office window going, hello, hello, can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Hello? 
never get signal that building. And here I was on a day where there was no signal. All the phones were out. There was no signal. I was in the middle of the stairwell, in the middle of the building. My phone rang. I picked it up. I was so shocked. I went, hello? It was my wife on the other end of that phone. And she was crying and she was telling me something about a plane going into the building. I had no idea what she was talking about. I said to her, Joyce, I'm in a stairwell. I'm on the 75th floor. I'm on my way down. Now is not a good time. I said, I'll call you when I get out of the building. And I hung up the phone, not realizing it would be hours until I could speak to her again. Roy Bell turns to me and says to me, oh, my God, you got signal on your phone. Can I use your phone to call my wife? I said, of course. I handed him my phone. He dialed. He hit send. Nothing. Dead. I literally looked up and I said, thank you, God. Because at least I knew now that my wife knew that I was alive. And that was very, very comforting for me. I'm sure it was for her, too. We continued on down. We get down to the 50th floor. Virginia says to me, Ari, I can't go on. Can't do it. So my first instinct was I'll have her sit down. I'll have her rest. And then I said to myself, you know what? If she sits down, she may never get up. And if she doesn't get up, she's going to die. And like that wasn't on my agenda for the day. I got to be honest with you. So I said, no, Virginia, you can do this. And we started to, some people had uh, um, water that they, that they, you know, water bottles, whatever that they were giving her to drink. And then we poured it on her arms to give her relief from the, from the burns. I mean, she was a mess. And now I'm coaching. I'm counting the floors down, right? 45, 44, 42. We're doing great. We're doing great. And we were doing great until 38. 38 was backed up with people. See, the firefighters had stopped the people from going down because they were coming up. So when we, when, um, when we reached that crowd, there was a woman who heard our footsteps and she turned around and she saw Virginia and she was like, oh, Virginia says to me, Ari, how bad is it? I said, Virginia, you look great. You're fine. You're going to be okay. Now, I was really scared at this point because I knew she wasn't fine and I knew she needed help. So I started to yell out, is there a paramedic in the building? I've got a burn victim here. Please, if you're a paramedic, please come and help us. Otherwise, please step to the right and let us through. And they did. People squeezed over as much as possible and they literally opened a path so that we can continue going down. We got down, we got down to the first floor and the fire warden is, you know, keeps going. And I go, where are you going? He goes, we have to get out through the garage. I turned to Virginia and I said, we got to go down like five or six more flights. But heck, we just came down 78. What's another four or five? And we continued down. We got down two flights when all of a sudden the door on the first floor opens up and some guy yells out, where are you people going? And I said, we're going out through the garage. The guy says, no, no, you can't get out through the garage. You've got to come back up here and come out through the first floor. I turned to Virginia. I said, we got to go back up two flights. She said a few things that I can't say in mixed company or in any company. <laughs> and we headed back up. Now, here's the coincidence or irony. Who is the guy who opened the door? I don't know. I never saw him. I only heard a voice. And why did he pick that moment to open the door? I don't know. But that guy saved our lives that day. You see, what I found out later was there were people in that garage that never got out. Wow. Who was this guy? I don't know. We got out on the first floor and we were right by the lobby of Tarawan, which is all where it all begins for me every day. 
Um, Virginia asked me to please, you know, call her mom, let her know that she's okay. We get uh, escorted by police out, out of the building. Um, I asked uh, a cop, like, where, you know, I've got a burn victim. Where do we go? They said, across the street in front of the Millennium Hotel. We're setting up a triage center, which they did. I brought her across the street. An ambulance finally pulls up. We help her into the ambulance. And I finally breathe a sigh of relief because at least now she's getting medical attention. Up until now, it was just my keeping her spirits up. That's when I turned around. And for the first time, I saw the buildings on fire. And there was a guy standing next to me. And I said to him, how did building two get on fire? The guy looks at me like I'm crazy. You see, I never heard the second plane. And people look at me like I'm crazy. But the reality is, you know, when I analyzed it, I was so focused on helping Virginia, right? I had blocked everything else out. And that's all I cared about. And that was my focus. And I never heard that second plane. The guy tells me two jetliners went into the buildings. They're calling a terrorist attack. I look at him like he's crazy, right? But I'm running scared. I tried calling my wife, couldn't get through. Tried calling Virginia's mom, couldn't get through. There was no signal. There was nothing going on. Um, and then I turned to the ambulance driver and I said, like, why aren't you leaving? You've got a burn victim here. She's in a lot of, you know, she's in a lot of trouble. Whatever. He goes, we can't leave until we fill the ambulance. They were expecting a huge amount of casualties and they weren't going to leave until they had six, seven, eight people in that ambulance. They wouldn't even let Virginia lay down. She had to be sitting up. And I remember she was writhing in pain, telling me, Ari, I'm going to faint. And I kept telling her, Virginia, hold on. You're going to be okay. Finally, they fill the ambulance and they go, okay, we're ready to go. I breathe a sigh of relief because I know she's going to get help now. All right. And as soon as that ambulance leaves, it's only one place that I'm going. And that's back into that building because I'm looking for my friends. I'm looking for coworkers. I'm looking to help. That's all I care about. Um, so when he says, okay, we're ready to roll, Virginia turns to me and says to me, Ari, you're coming with us. And I go like, Virginia, you don't need me anymore. You know, I'm going to get a hold of your mom. She's going to meet you at the hospital and you're going to be okay. She turns to the ambulance driver and she says, we're not leaving unless he comes with us. He looks at me. I look at him. I see in his eyes, he's thinking, this is not a cab service. I'm thinking, I don't need a cab. But the reality is, I figured maybe for her own psychological benefit, maybe I should go. So he says, fine, hop into the front. I got into the front of that ambulance, and we pulled away. We were one of only a few ambulances that actually got away from the scene that day. There were pictures of my friends who, who worked for a volunteer ambulance company that was down there, showed me pictures of crushed ambulances at the scene. Virginia thanks me every day for saving her life. But my question always is to her, who saved whose life? You see, if she wouldn't have insisted on my getting into that ambulance, I would have been standing at the base of that building when it came down and I'd be dead. No doubt in my mind. But she insisted that I get into that ambulance. So who saved whose life? Got her to the ambulance, got her to the, um, to the hospital, uh, St. Vincent's Hospital, 7th Avenue and 12th Street. Brought her in there. Um, and then they threw me out because I wasn't a relative, even though I brought her in. And that was very disturbing to me. By the time I got out of the hospital, um, Tower 2 had collapsed. Um, you know, it was it's just a, a day of, you know, 
one thing after another, after another, but you know, I, at least I had gotten away and I made it. I ultimately wound up in my brother's office. I first wound up in a friend of mine's office on 16th street, and ninth Avenue. Um, and I was able to make some calls there, let people know that I'm alive. And then I got a hold of my brother who worked on 47th street and sixth Avenue. And, um, I told him I was coming up to him. We met. And then ultimately there was some subway service that we took out to Queens. And from there, I had a friend of mine who owned the car service. And I called her earlier and I said, I know you can't get me. I know you can't pick me up in the city, but if I get out of the city, can you send a car to pick me up? And she says, Ari, whatever you need, here's the number. You call this number 24 seven. They'll help you. They'll give you whatever you need. And, and that's what I did. I called up and we hit Queens. We got out and I called up and they said, you know, it'll be a half hour. And I looked at the traffic. It was stopped dead. Literally, I knew it was going to be longer than that. Ultimately, the car came and my brother came to my house. The two of us, uh, he called his wife. Oh, by that time, the cell phones were working. Um, he called my house. He called his wife to tell her to meet up at my house. We got to my house at about 530 that afternoon. There were 20 people in my living room and I had no less than 100 phone messages. And I'll never forget, I learned a very important lesson that day. You have no idea how many friends you really have until they all think you're dead. Because <laughs> that's when they came out of the woodwork. And I remember, by the way, um, I had a, uh, an answering, phone answering machine, right? And back then, it wasn't digital. It was a little micro cassettes. You remember those little micro cassettes? Yeah. I still have that cassette tape. I don't have anything to play it on, but I still have the cassette tape. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot more to the story throughout the course of the day. Um, it's all in my book, Miracles and Fate on 78, which is available from my website or on Amazon. Um, yeah, that's kind of, yes. Oh, you got the book. Absolutely. So those that are watching this on video, it's here it is i'm gonna put all the links in the in the show notes and everything but yeah for sure i want to be able to share that with everyone well thank you so now you had 662 employees in that company you worked for well no we had 662 employees that were in the building that day we actually had okay. 960 employees okay 658 of them were sitting at their desks. Four of them were on their way up to the offices. They were on the higher floors going up to their offices. And three of them were so severely burned, they spent months and months in hospitals undergoing, you know, surgeries and rehabilitation. I was the guy that walked out without a scratch. Wow. Now, I mean, I, I really look at it as, Everyone has points in their lives where, whether it's a wake up or whether it's whatever it is, that it's a life changing moment. No one has an experience like this. What, what have you learned? Oh, so it was a life changing experience for me, um, but it didn't happen all at once. All right. It didn't happen right away. I always tell people I was the same guy on Wednesday that I was on Tuesday, minus 658 friends and coworkers. Um, 
But what happened was, as I started to tell my story more and more, I realized the magnitude of what had happened. And I, you know, I started to realize how close to death I had come. And I made some major decisions. You know, it used to be the most important thing in my life was my work. Everything evolved out around my work. And that was like forever. You know, from the time I started working, there was nothing more important. It was, you know, I, I missed all kinds of stuff that happened in my home life because work was more important. I remember my kids used to say to me, you know, Daddy, can you come to the school play? I've got the lead role, you know, and I know Daddy's got to work. Daddy, can you come on the class trip? We're going to the zoo. Some of the other daddies are going, can you go? I go, no, Daddy's got to work. You know, Daddy, can you come to mock trial? You know, it's after school, so it's after work, so you could be there, right? No, daddy's got to work late. Daddy's got to work. Daddy's got to work. That was always the refrain until that day. And today, daddy's on the class trips. Daddy's at the school plays. Daddy's wherever his children and now grandchildren need him to be because that is what is important in life. But there was another side to the story, and that was um, I, it, it hit me that I was given a second chance. I was plucked out of a burning, collapsing building and given a second chance. It was literally as if God was saying to me, all right, what are you going to do with it? And I made some serious changes in my life. One of the major changes that I made, by the way, was I vowed that I was no longer going to swear. No more fallout of words, no more cursing. All right. And when you work on Wall Street, man, that is those guys are worse than drunken sailors. I mean, it's just the, the language that goes on. is just oh, horrible. But what happened was, and this is a, a lesson, because I made that decision. All right. And people respected me for who I was and what I was. Whenever there was a meeting around my desk, in my office or at a conference room. All right. If I was there, nobody would curse. They all knew Ari Shomer doesn't swear, and they didn't swear. And if by chance somebody did by accident, the response would always be the same. Excuse me, please. I I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. I didn't didn't mean it. All right? So because I made a decision, look at the effect that it had on the people around me. So I always tell people, think about decisions that you make. Because let me tell you something. You will have an effect. Whatever the decision is, you will have an effect, for better or worse, on the people around you and the family around you. So that was one of the major things that I, that I learned. Okay. And I changed my life. All right. I became, you know, I used to fly off the handle at the drop of a hat. I used to get ticked, right. You know, it was easy to tick me off. No more. doesn't happen anymore. Okay. This it, it, life's too short. Life's too short for that. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I, my family is most important to me more than anything. All right. Um, My God is important to me as much as my family. My God is important to me. And I always tell people, you know, because people complain all the time. And I said, and I heard this, this is not my line of somebody else's line, but basically they said, don't tell God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big your God is. And that that stuck with me. That is, think about it. It it is fantastic. All right. And that's, you know, that's what I would tell your audience. 
You know, if you're going through some stuff, all right, hey, you know, I may not be going through what you're going through, but I've been through my own, all right? And I came through it and my life changed, all right? Now, I'm going to tell you something else, all right? My life didn't change, as I said to you, it didn't happen overnight. You know, how often does a life-changing event happen to somebody and then three days later it's over and they're back to where they were? It's like New Year's resolutions, right? How long do they last? About a half hour. <laughs> right. Right. So with me, the reason it stuck was because it didn't happen overnight. It was a slow process. As I said to you, as I started to tell my story more and more, all right, it started to sink in. It took about eight months, all right, for me to, to make that complete transformation. So if you do it, if, if it's going to happen right away for you, so to speak, like, you know, uh, you have this life-changing experience. I'm going to sit on a mountain. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, become a monk and I'm going to become a rabbi. I'm going to become a priest. I'm going to, you know, I, three days later, it's all gone. It's all over because you can't, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Now, something I'm curious about, I know you're a religious man. Where, where are your thoughts and feelings to the people that did this? Did this? You know, uh, anger at first. Um, but you can't... I, I, look, you know, they, they, everybody got upset at Saudi Arabia because that's where these people came from, Saudi Arabia. So are you going to condemn an entire country because of the acts of a few, you can't, you can't do that. Do I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't like terrorists. I abhor terrorists. Okay. And I think that the world in general needs to do something about the terrorist problem. Um, but so I was, you know, I was outraged at these people that did this. All right. I lost a lot of friends. I mean, 658 employees. I knew about 500 of them personally. Okay. So I was really, we lost 20 sets of siblings. All right. This was, this hurt. This really hurt. But when you take a step back and you think, okay, so getting angry and hurt. All right. So what is that going to accomplish? Well, not much. So what happened was, I actually joined a, uh, um, a charitable organization called Strength to Strength. And what they do is they work with victims of terror. And, you know, they asked me to be on their board. I knew the president very, very well, a young woman who actually was on a bus in Jerusalem that, was blood, that, I, that a suicide bomber got on and blew himself up right where right near where my friend was sitting on the bus and everybody around her died except for her. And, um, you know, she started this organization. She begged me to come on the board. I took two years. I only went on the board. I'm still on that board of strength to strength. And they work with victims of terror globally because you know what? A lot of people are, are affected by it, whether they were, they were directly affected or they had a relative who was hurt or, you know, something like that, all right? They don't realize the effect that it has on them, all right? But it does have an effect on them, especially we deal a lot with kids, 14 to 21, 
all right, who really, you know, I mean, they all blame themselves, all right? They all, you know, they say it's their fault. And, you know, we tried to explain to them, it's not your fault. It's not your fault, okay? It was some crazy people who did some crazy things, okay? Um, yeah, that's, that's what I got. I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that I really gained from you here is, you know, it's really what matters most because, you know, like you said, you used to fly off the handle at things really easy and whatnot. And this was an experience that really makes you reflect on things of, you know, what what really matters, what is making me fly off the handle. And I, I really appreciate that. We share with us, tell us about uh, Whispers and Bricks. Whispers and Bricks. So um, I'll give you the name. The name came about because of a story that I often tell um, when, I'm, when I'm on stage. All right. And it's about this young executive who is 35 years old. He's climbing the ladder of success. He's doing really, really well. Goes out and buys himself a brand new Jaguar. And he's driving down the city streets and maybe he's going a little too fast. And there's some kids that are darting in and out. And as he passes at one street, all of a sudden, wham, his car gets hit by a brick. So he, he stops the car, slams on the brakes, puts the car in reverse, pulls back, jumps out of the car, sees this kid, grabs this kid and says to him, why did you do that? Why did you do the brick of this car? Do you know what that dent's going to cost me to fix? It's a brand new car. Why did you do that? The little boy goes, please, mister, please. I didn't know what to do. You see, my older brother fell out of his wheelchair and he's too heavy for me. I couldn't pick him up and I, I couldn't get anybody to stop. So I didn't know what to do. So the guy says, where's your brother? He takes him by the hand. They walk down to the end of the block. And sure enough, there's a boy in the street with an overturned wheelchair. So this young executive takes the wheelchair and he puts it right side up and he picks the boy up and he puts him in the wheelchair, takes out a handkerchief from his pocket and he wipes away the blood from the scratches and the little boy starts wheeling his brother away. And he says, thank you, mister. Thank you so much. This guy walks back to his car, looks at the dent and vows never ever to fix it because he never wants to forget what happened. See, they say that God, he talks to our minds. He whispers, he whispers to our minds and he whispers to our hearts. But sometimes we're so busy running through life, the same way that I was so busy with work running through life, that we don't pay attention to the whispers. So every so often, he has to throw a brick at us to wake us up. I tell people, me, I had the brick thrown at me. That was my 9-11. I had the brick thrown at me. You have a choice. You can listen to the whispers or you can wait for the brick. And so I came up with whispers and bricks because let's be real, everybody in the world, no matter how good they, no, how good, how good they look, no matter how, you know, you know how, how good they smell, you know, most people are going through or have gone through something. Some a little better, some a little worse, but most people are going through. They go through, and oftentimes because you know they don't bother, they don't bother listening to those whispers, so they get hit with a brick. All right. But many, very often, once they get hit with that brick, you know, they start listening to the whispers and they start getting themselves back on track and, you know, getting everything together. So that's that was the um, that was how we came up with Whispers and Bricks. And that's what we do. You know, I I teach people um, how to get through 
some of the things that they're going through. I started a podcast called Whispers and Bricks um, to bring on people like you who have gone through things as well. You know, you and I have shared what you've gone through um, and, you know, what other people go through. And I, and I bring on all kinds of interesting guests, doctors, lawyers, sports, athletes, and the like, because everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. And I, I do this because I want to reach as many people as I possibly can and let them know that whatever they're going through, they're not alone. There are other people going through exactly what they're going through. They're not alone and they can get through it. And that's why I started. And then I started the Whispers and Bricks Academy, which is uh, life coaching, executive coaching. You know, it's to help people get through whatever problems and issues that they're having, whether it be it in their personal life, be it in their work life, whatever it is, right? They should, I, you know, I, I help them get through whatever it is. It's a seven-week program. Um, and, you know, I've had a lot of success. I've had a lot, a lot of success. So we've got, and of course, I have my speaking, you know, which is, by the way, just FYI, the reason I started Whispers and Bricks uh, podcast and Whispers and Bricks Academy is because when COVID hit, you know, my, my, my whole business dried up. My business was speaking, right? Conferences and the like. And, and, you know, I was very much in demand. Right. But then once once COVID hit, nobody's doing conferences, nobody's doing anything. My my income went from six figures to zero. You know, so I said, ah, you know, I need to do something else, another revenue stream. And that's what I'm doing. So I'm putting together this other revenue stream. And thank God, you know, this, the, the speaking business is starting to come back a little bit. So hopefully between the three, you know, maybe I'll be able to make a living. But more importantly, honestly, more importantly, is just helping the people. That's really, that's really what it's all about. That's what you do. That's what I do. You know, that's what we do. We do that as speakers. We do that as coaches. You know, we try and help people. Yeah, absolutely. Are you amazing? Um, so where, where does everyone find you? I'm going to share everything about the book. I'm going to have that in the show notes. I'm going to share that. But where do they find you? If they want to find out more about Whispers and Bricks, if they want to follow you, where does everyone find you? Very, very simple. There are, t- there are several ways they can. I'm all over uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, Twitter, although I don't do that much on Twitter, but I'm all over that. So you can find me, Ari Schoenbrunn. Um, you can find me at my website, which is arishomer.com. I'll spell it. It is A R I. S-C-H-O-N-B-R-U-N.com, arishoman.com. You can also find me at whispersandbricks.com. All right, all one word. That's where you can find me. Reach out to me. Um, You know, you can, I've got contact information on my websites. Uh, You can, you know, uh, send me a message via LinkedIn, via via, LinkedIn. uh, Facebook, and um, I answer all my own, all my mail. Okay, I don't have anybody else going through it or anything else. I answer all of my all of my mail, and I try and get to everything within twenty four hours. So, yep, that's what I do. That's what I am. I'm happy to be here. By the way, I do not suffer from survivor's guilt. All right, I was very happy to be alive. And so is my family. Um, 
And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thank you for sharing that with us, Ari. It's it's an amazing story, and you know, you were put in some places for some specific reasons, and I really appreciate the opportunity to get to know you better and um, hear your story. And so, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on your show. I love it. You know, uh, you're incredible. You're an incredible individual. I'm so glad that our paths crossed, and I'm sure we're going to do. I'm sure they're going to cross again. And I'm sure we're going to stay in touch. And who knows what the what you know what the next step is going to bring. Thank you. I'm looking for entrepreneurs, athletes, coaches, and other high achievers who want to discover their full potential. Those that have dreams and desires of getting to the next level and just need to figure out how to get there. Hi, my name is Jeff Hagee. I'm a success coach, and I want to show you the truth about developing a powerful mindset. One of the biggest things holding people back from achieving their dreams is their own limiting beliefs. And the bad thing about limiting beliefs is they prevent you from discovering your true potential and cause you to settle for way less than you really deserve. I've seen this time and again in business, athletics, all areas of life. And worst of all, many people never get past the idea that achieving their biggest dreams in life is just that, a dream. But luckily, now there's a solution for this problem. So if you're an entrepreneur, athlete, coach, or other high achiever that really wants to get to the next level, but it just hasn't happened yet, Here's the solution you've been looking for. I want to introduce you to High Achievers Mindset Secrets. High Achievers Mindset Secrets is designed to help you gain control of your future, become absolutely clear on your goals and how you're going to achieve them, discover the true potential of what you have within yourself, and live every day with confidence, intentionally live the life you desire, and much, much more. From day one, you'll be able to start implementing the strategies that will bring results into your life. High Achievers Mindset Secrets is designed specifically to meet your needs, and there's three options for you to choose from. First of all, there's the six module course. Over the course of these six modules, you'll learn the momentum cycle, the success cycle, and how to make them work in your favor, how to build confidence and self-belief. You'll learn to create clear goals, understand what you need to do to achieve them, and most importantly, you'll discover your why for each one, and I'll tell you now, it's not what you think. You'll learn the power of mindset questions, visualization, and having a vivid vision. You'll learn the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset and how you can change it. You'll understand the importance of proximity as power. You'll create personal development habits that lead to success. You'll create your own personal success formula. You'll also learn the connection of mindset and mental health, the importance of state, modeling, and mindfulness, and so much more. The second option is the academy. In the academy, you get the full six-module course, plus some specific specialized one-on-one coaching. In the team program, it's designed for athletic teams, sales teams, executive teams, any team that wants to maximize its potential. Each person on the team will go through the six module course and then there'll be some group coaching specifically with me. So again, if you're an entrepreneur, athlete, coach, or any other high achiever that really wants to get to the next level and you're committed to making it happen, you know every day counts. You deserve to be living the life that you want on your rules. You deserve to achieve those dreams, start that business, win that championship, get recruited, whatever that is that you desire. There's never been a better time in history to make a change and take charge of your future. You work hard. You want it bad. You're committed to making it happen. Let's do it now. So get on board with the High Achievers Mindset Secrets because I look forward to working with you. Get more details at mindset.jeffhagey.com.